ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Today we take a look at the rise of India's buffalo trade and what it means for Australia's cattle industry, especially live exports. I think it creates an enormous amount of competition. And I think next year in 2024, that competition is going to increase even more. You'll also today get to meet a drone pilot whose job at the moment is all about finding and killing feral cats. And which company exploring for gas in the Northern Territory has gone into receivership? I'll tell you in just a moment on The Country Hour. Big show today. We are broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. Hello there. If you are tuning in via the podcast, uh, just looking at the radar this afternoon, few storms popping up across the top end. Looks like it's flogging down rain at Millingimby as we go to air this afternoon. If it is raining at your place, let the rest of us know so we can celebrate the text number 0487 991057. If it's raining at your place, we will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at 5 past 1. That text number 0487 991057. Now, the federal government's sea dumping amendment bill was passed in the Senate yesterday, and this will allow resources companies to import and export carbon dioxide across international borders, which sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but uh, this is what's happening. And without this law, Santos's $5.8 billion Barossa gas project would actually struggle to go ahead. Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson, he voted against the bill, calling it a naked and shameless attempt to facilitate the dirtiest fossil fuel project in the nation's history. I spoke to the senator earlier on and got him to explain what this bill is all about. Yeah, look, um, there's been a push on in uh, Australia and and, and overseas to develop carbon capture and storage technologies. and some of those involve um, using geological structures in the ocean to store um, pollution from fossil fuel projects. So basically the carbon dioxide gets injected uh, back into the, uh, an empty reservoir, uh, which can, if it works, can, uh, can basically cover a project's scope one emissions. So emissions that would normally be associated with, uh, you know, the development of a, a fossil fuel project. So, we have uh, in Australia, within Australian waters, which are out to 200 nautical miles, we have a number of proposed uh, carbon capture and storage projects in the ocean. Uh, this bill was more specific, though. It was it was allowing the importing and the exporting of carbon pollution. So um, beyond an international border, essentially. Yeah, across an international border. So it could go both ways. Basically, existing uh, carbon capture and storage proposals in Australia's territorial waters could seek a licence to import carbon dioxide from overseas and store it in their geological structures, uh, or an Australian project in Australian waters um, may also apply for a licence to export their carbon dioxide overseas. And there's an international protocol around that, and that's called the London Protocol. So this was an amendment 
that essentially allowed Australian companies to do that. Mm. And, it, and it now puts Australia in line with what other nations do. Is that correct? Not all. Not all nations. No. Um, look, you know, this London Protocol has been around for fifteen or so years, and Australia's just chosen now to to amend uh, to amend that you know legislation here in Australia to you know provide that regulatory or legislative framework. I suppose the the the, pro, the proposal that we know uh, has been discussed at the highest levels of the Australian government and uh, other governments in our region is for the Barossa project um, in the Northern Territory or in the, in the Timor Sea uh, to export their carbon dioxide across the boundary with East Timor. Now, East Timor, for example, hasn't signed the London Protocol, mm. so they, they don't have to abide by um, the protocols, that those international protocols, which is, of course, part of the problem because while Australia might have some protocols in place now to do this, it doesn't mean other nations do. Yeah. Can we talk about your concerns with this? You voted against the bill. Why aren't you a fan of this? Yeah, look, there's lots of concerns. Um, look, firstly, carbon capture and storage in the oceans is is a, a largely unproven uh, technology or, or process. Um, it's certainly not at scale. Um, there's only really two existing uh, long-term carbon capture and storage projects in the ocean in Norway, um, and they've been plagued with a lot of problems. And we've also had one in Australia, uh, which is the Gorgon uh, project, which is owned by Chevron. Um, and of course, the Chevron project's a $3 billion project. Uh, it's been talked about now for over 10 years and it and hasn't worked. Certainly not nowhere near in line with what they were expecting. And this is the problem with these underwater or under under surface uh, storage uh, proposals for you know, storing carbon in the ocean. Um, so firstly, it's an unproven te uh, technology. So if a company is going to get their project approved on the basis that they're going to you know, they're going to store their CO2 under the ocean, um, we've got a lot of concerns with that because we just don't think it works. In fact, if anything, we think it's potentially a, a red herring. It's greenwashing. It's companies saying they're going to do it, but there's no evidence that in the future that we'll actually see those emissions reduced. Just on the, yeah. the claim of it being unproven technology, I guess mm. the internet wasn't very good when it started. Isn't CCS yeah. something that the world needs? No, look, I don't think so. I think what the world needs is is no more new fossil fossil fuel projects. So if you're going to be using uh, an unproven technology uh, as a, I suppose, a lever to start developing new massive carbon pro you know, carbon bombs and dirty fossil fuel projects, uh, we have a big big problem with that, and so do a lot of people. Uh, the best thing to do is to leave it in the ground and transition to renewable energy. Um, the other thing you've got to consider is even if these carbon capture and storage projects work in the ocean, um, you're only talking about capturing scope one emissions. The scope two emissions, uh, when it's burnt at, for example, um, power power stations, uh, or the scope three emissions when it's used for uh, other other purposes such as manufacturing. Um, whatever, um, they're not captured either. And of course, scope two and three emissions are the biggest part of the equation. Mm. So developing new fossil fuel projects is not the right thing to be doing right now. So I think it's really important to point that out. Can I share It'll this? Share the quote the from, yeah, can I share this quote from Senator Penny Wong? Uh, she said this week that maybe those who care about national security should think about the fact that the governments of Korea and Japan have been asking us to pass this mm. legislation. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I do. Um, I spent the whole week in the Senate uh, 
asking questions for the government. Um, who, who's behind this? What, why the urgency to pass this London, London Protocol or sea dumping amendment? Um, because it's been uh, as a, you know, it, it's in the media as a matter of public record that the climate um, climate change minister Chris Bowen has been saying that um, the Korean and Japanese governments, on behalf of large investors. Um, from those countries uh, in Australian fossil fuel projects have been pushing for this, in particular to get the Barossa project up and running. Now, um, the Barossa project, uh, under the safeguard mechanism amendments that were passed at the, you know, through the Senate earlier this year, um, they're going to have to cough up about a billion dollars in upfront uh, carbon uh, abatements. Yeah, what's that got to do so, with national security, though? And these I actually points. think it's got nothing, got nothing to do with national security from what I can tell. I'd be very interested for Senator Wong to have expanded uh, on that comments. I mean, it, you, could, you could argue that maybe it's going to impact our friendships and diplomatic relationships with those countries because their governments are obviously representing big, big corporations and investors who want to develop more fossil fuel projects. Um, but I really don't know what it's got to do with national security. If anything, I think developing new fossil fuel projects and warming the planet uh, is going to have much more serious consequences for national security. Um, and, you know, the government's sitting on a uh, secret report from the um, Office of uh, National Intelligence that specifically is talking about the threat to our national security from climate change and the development of new fossil fuel projects. And the, the Australian government is refusing to release that report for public consumption. And I suspect it's because it actually is quite damning of developing new fossil fuel projects. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very confused about Penny Wong's comments there. They, they don't make sense in, in the bigger picture. It's Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson talking about the sea dumping amendment bill that was passed in the Senate last night with support from the Coalition. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan, this is a big win for Santos, yes? It is, because without this bill, its Barossa project can't really go ahead. An issue there is because Barossa's gas is made up of a very high percentage of carbon dioxide, and under the safeguard mechanisms, new projects like the Barossa have to reduce their carbon emissions. And so to do this, Santos wants to take that carbon, send it into Darwin LNG, and then back out to Bayundan, and therefore reducing its carbon emissions in Santos's eyes. And what it also does is helps um, Santos push the cost of decommissioning that Bayundan gas field, which is about to run out. It's got its last LNG shipment due before the end of the year. That is estimated to cost around $1.6 billion. To decommission it. To decommission it, to clean it all up. If that's being used as a carbon capture and storage project, that cost is pushed down the road to sometime in the 2050s. Wow. So instead of spending $1.6 billion, you can pump it for the CO2. Yes. Yeah. That, that will also cost Santos quite a, a bit amount of money. I have asked them how much. Uh, they say that's, they haven't worked that out yet until it goes into final investment decision. Um, as part of this story, we have contacted Santos for, for comment. Mm. Um, a spokesperson for the company said, the passage of the sea dumping bill is crucial if Australia is serious about delivering tangible emissions reduction at home and supporting regional decarbonisation efforts. It goes on to say that Santos agrees a large scale-up of CCS is required and we are leading the charge with the technology, infrastructure and knowledge to deliver low-cost CCS and low-carbon energy competitively on a global scale. Now, Santos was, this is on another matter, Santos was back in the federal court yesterday 
when we went to air, a decision had not been made. What happened in the end? Yeah, so this was over the uh, injunction on the construction starting on the Barossa pipeline. It's yep. been held up by a, um, uh, a challenge by some Tiwi traditional owners. That injunction was due to end at 5pm yesterday. It's been pushed down two days or so until the judge makes her, is expected to hand down her decision on Wednesday afternoon. Okay. Now. And yesterday there was also a further development with two new traditional owner applicants from a different clan group on the Tiwi Islands. They also joined Simon Mankara, who was the first TO to launch that challenge. Um, So there's been a few more people added to that case. And yes, we'll find out on Wednesday. On Wednesday, maybe. All right. Thank you very much for keeping us up to date, Dan Fitzgerald. It's 18 to 1. This is the Country Hour on the topic of gas. The NT Independent has this week published a story about Chief Minister Natasha Files holding an undisclosed amount of shares in the gas company Woodside. The ABC's Joe Laverty asked the Chief Minister about this perceived conflict of interest. Let's have a listen to that. It was revealed by the Northern Territory Independent's Chris Walsh yesterday that you have shares in Woodside, which has subsidiary interests in the carbon capture and storage development at Middle Arm. Do you agree this could be perceived as a conflict of interest? Joe, it wasn't revealed yesterday. It was something that I publicly declared over a decade ago. When you're elected to Parliament, and this may be news to your listeners, you have to declare everything from your family home to the fact you own a motor vehicle to the fact you might own a boat or a camper trailer. You have to declare every single potential conflict. So I have to declare the memberships that I have of local sporting clubs. And so I ensure that I do that and keep that registry up to date. So it's something that's been publicly declared for over a decade. And the reason why... Why, Joe, is then the public can see and also we can manage those conflicts. And I manage conflicts in my role every single day and have done for a long period of time. So you have shares in Woodside and you have had so for more than 10 years. Impex's submission on October 31 to the inquiry states that Woodside Energy alongside Total Energies are part of the joint partnership for the Bonaparte Carbon Capture and Storage Assessment Project, which would benefit from the Middle Arm Carbon Capture Storage Facility. So do you agree this could be perceived as a conflict of interest? So, Joe, as I have said, um, I have publicly declared this for over a decade. I declare everything and then each conflict is managed uh, each and every day in the role that I have. That doesn't make it not a conflict of interest, though, and certainly in the eyes of the public. So, Joe, this is exactly what conflicts of interest are, declaring the potential conflict and then managing those conflicts. And as I said, uh, I do that each and every day, have done for over a decade now. Uh, And so it's been publicly declared there is, as I said, um, processes in place to manage conflict. um, And I certainly manage conflicts every day in my role. So do you have any say on the development of Middle Arm whilst also being a shareholder of one of those who may benefit from it? So, Joe, I've outlined to your listeners and they can place judgment on it, but we certainly make sure that we have processes to manage any perceived or actual conflicts and we do that regularly in our jobs. I feel that people probably are judging it based on these answers so far, Chief Minister. Do you accept that you do have a say in the development of Middle Arm whilst also holding shares in Woodside Energy? Joe, what I'm focused on is building a project that will create income and jobs for Territorians. Uh-huh. In terms of my individual conflicts, they are well listed and have been on the parliamentary members' register of interest since the moment I entered Parliament. And as I said, I ensure I uh, update that regularly. 
The Territory Chief Minister, Natasha Files, speaking to Joe Laverty this morning as we go to air shares in Woodside are up 2.4% this afternoon. Year to date, they've fallen 16.5%. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. Oh, look at some of these rainfall figures up to nine o'clock this morning. Adelaide River Township, 49 in the gauge. The post office, 52 millimetres. Pearl and Gimby Airport, 56 millimetres over the 24-hour period. The Keep River National Park out there on the border, 28 in the gauge. Yalara Airport, 12 millimetres. West Baines River, 22 and just looking at the radar, there's some decent storms getting around as we go to air. If it's rain at your place, let us know. 04-8799-1057 is our text number. Uh, up next on the Country Hour, we're going to take a look at the rise of India's buffalo trade and what it means for Australia's cattle industry, especially our live exports. Hi, I'm Casey Townsend from Hazard Station. We have the little miniature cattle and you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> On the text, Jerry in Howard Springs is reporting there's nothing to report in terms of rainfall. Got nothing in my place. Nil, zero, nothing, day after day. Someone doesn't like us, says Jerry. <laughs> and uh, another text here off the back of that interview you heard with Natasha Files, the Chief Minister. Uh, someone here says, we discover that she holds shares in Woodside whilst parroting their talking points around gas. How is that not a clear conflict of interest? It's disgusting, says fed up Alice Springs resident on 0487 1057. Now, over the last few years, Australia's live cattle trade to Indonesia has been in decline. So from exporting nearly 700,000 head back in 2019, last year the trade shipped about 340,000 head, so half. And this year looks to be about that again. Is competition from Indian buffalo meat playing a role in all of this? Meet analyst Simon Quilty. He's been in India this month taking a look at several abattoirs. I had a chat to him about what he saw and what it means for Australia's cattle trade. Matt, um, India's buffalo industry today is truly back on the march in terms of um, both capacity and their ability. So in the last three to four years, we've seen a number of major operators here uh, consolidate in terms of becoming larger and a lot of the small players are being pushed out of the trade. So we've seen Meatworks being upgraded because now they're com truly competitive in all the other markets around the world. And how big of a customer has Indonesia become for this Indian buffalo meat? Indonesia is really um, an important market it sits at the moment, Matt, around about third. It off, it relies, as you know, on a clunky quota system that at times works, you know, 
in favour of um, the exporters, but it has at times been a little unpredictable. And, you know, in recent times, the talk of access by Brazil has also added a layer of uncertainty into that market. Um, So it sits now third. The number one market is Vietnam, followed by Malaysia. Um, And the other critical market is Egypt and the Middle East, where almost half of all of exports out of India today go into the Middle East. But those top three nations that you mentioned, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, they are all destinations for Australia's live cattle trade. How much competition is this Indian buffalo meat creating? I think it creates an enormous amount of competition. And I think next year in 2024, that competition is going to increase even more. And why I say that, Matt, is that Estimates for Egypt in particular is that imports will be down 30% due to the challenges of their local economy and basically getting paid out of Egypt has been challenging. So that meat, buffalo meat, has to go elsewhere. And to me, you're going to start to see more volume pushed into markets like Indonesia that will displace Australian cattle in that environment. But interestingly to me, Vietnam has the ability to absorb that extra meat and also extra cattle out of Australia because at the start of this year, that grey channel to China reopened. So even though we're going to see, I think, a challenging time in Indonesia, I'm hoping and believing that Vietnam may step up and you might say take on that role. And Simon, just on price, how does Australian live cattle and Australian boxed beef, how does it compare on price with Indian buffalo? Um, Indian buffalo is about a third to a quarter of the value of boxed beef out of Australia. So it is incredibly competitive. But what's interesting, Matt, is that Australia's role both for, for cattle and for boxed beef is more at the high end part of the market within Indonesia, whereas Indian buffalo sits at the manufacturing end of that market. Um, So they have, you might say, completely different roles. There is, though, an overlap where Australia's um, manufacturing meat compete directly with Indian buffalo. So what I find interesting is that Brazil beef has really struggled in this environment because it sits in no man's land within Indonesia, it's neither at the high end of the market nor can it compete with um, cheap Indian buffalo at the the manufacturing end. So to me, I find it interesting that Australia's role in Indonesia in the last year has actually increased in boxed beef and is up about 30,000 tonnes. But the devil is in the detail, Matt. And so to me, where Australia's actually displaced, you might say, New Zealand, US and Brazilian beef on the high end, and that's all related to price, and also Australia's displaced in part Indian buffalo on the manufacturing end. So do you think Indonesia will ever get back to a point where it buys 600,000 head plus of Australian cattle every year? I do, Matt, but I think it's going to take time. I think it's going to be another year of probably a difficult um, shipments 
um, my own estimates at the moment put you know live cattle exports for this year at about 335,000 head which is pretty well exactly what we shipped last year and I could see next year being another challenging year um, but I think once we get the flow back once we get some normality and also we've got to keep in mind that you know the economy in Indonesia is challenged and that too needs to have some time to pick itself up but I do see us getting back to some more traditional flows and and volumes um, probably after 2025-26. That's Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends. He's been in India this month touring abattoirs, seeing this industry firsthand. You can read more about this online right now if you go searching for NT Country Hour. Yo, namaste. My name's Gorgoro Hick. I work for Dimuru Aboriginal Corporation in North East Arnhem Land. One of our mottos is Nilimuru Bukmatjaka Wangao, meaning all of us together looking after country. And you're listening to Country Hour on ABC. Just before we get to the one o'clock news, I can tell you that a company that's been looking for gas in the Northern Territory has gone into receivership. Dan Fitzgerald, what's happened to Armour Energy? Well, Armour Energy, you might not have heard of it, is one of the smaller gas companies that's exploring in the NT. It's also got operations in Queensland and Victoria. And here in the Territory, it was looking for gas in the MacArthur Basin, which is just to the east of the Beetaloo Basin, with a plan of potentially supplying gas to the Merlin Diamond Mine uh, in the event that it got operational again. Now, Armour Energy has run into financial trouble. It was placed into administration. Cordamentha has been appointed as receivers. Right. Uh, looking at some of the financial uh, results in a quarterly update put out in September, the company said it defaulted on a loan repayment of $2.75 million. It had a debt of $34 million and pretty much all its financial indicators were on the decline. Uh, now, back in August, Armour said it had received a takeover offer from a Chinese company um, and it was sort of going through that process um, in the last few weeks. So that is potentially a way out for this company, but uh, what will happen, uh, that remains to be seen. Okay, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan Fitzgerald. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmar on the Stewart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. <laughs> We've got a story coming up in a moment that's literally about herding cats. True story. <laughs> and you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the efforts in Timor-Leste to protect pigs from African swine fever. Uh, this is all coming up on the Country Hour. And we're also hearing from you on 0487 Double nine one zero five seven. Alan Humpty Doo says, Matt, no whinging today. No whinging. We've had over 100 millimetres in Humpty Doo in the last week. Flowers are loving it. And the soil smells good enough to eat, says Al. Microbes and worms are dancing so much that I can hear them partying, says Al out there in the Doo this afternoon. Whoa. The soil smells so good you could eat it. 
<laughs> Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. How are you, Beck? Yeah, good, thank you, Matt. You are uh, hooking into a bowl of soil out there at the Bureau? <laughs> right. Nothing like the smell of petrichor in the morning. Petrichor, eh? yeah. Ooh, we might have to get that uh, Paul Kelly song on soon. Now, I'll just get you to move as close to the microphone as you can there, Beck, because you're sounding a little bit quiet on us. And uh, tell us... About the rain in the last 24 hours, what have we seen? Yeah, we've had um, had some good falls uh, to 9am this morning. The highest was on the Tiwi Islands, Perlingapi with 56 millimetres. Um, on the mainland, Adelaide River got 52, so pretty good rainfall through there. Um, that was mostly with those storms during yesterday afternoon, um, but most places around the top end are probably in that 10 to 30 millimetre range, which is, is pretty good. Um, and also around the Gregory District, we've seen some reasonable falls uh, around there as well. Um, we're starting to see those showers uh, developing right across the top end uh, this afternoon as well. Haven't seen too many Sparks, but um, mm. yeah, we've seen uh, a little bit of rainfall just east of Catherine. Uh, West Waterhouse has come up with 11.6 millimetres, so a bit of rain in those showers. Bit of rain. And just looking at the radar, there's, there's plenty of scattered storms getting around. So yeah, throughout the afternoon and evening, can can we expect to see more of this? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, just starting up now, but um, that should continue through the afternoon and evening, um, just starting to see um, maybe the odd shower further south as well, uh, around um, west of Lajamanu, so near the, the WA border down there as well, a few showers developing um, and expecting to see some more thunderstorm activity across the southwest of the NT today as well. In Central Australia and the Barkley, what should people be aware of? Uh, so yeah, storms in the in the Lassiter district uh, could be a bit gusty today. Um, probably increasing risk from tomorrow in terms of those winds um, being a bit more severe. So that's something to, to keep an eye yep. out for the next few days. And I see Alice will be forty degrees tomorrow. The forecast. Yeah, some quite hot conditions. Ooh. So at the moment we're seeing those forties a bit closer to the uh, the Queensland border. Um, but, yeah, uh, spreading a bit further west um, from tomorrow, and then that's pushing up through the Barclay as well, um, particularly as we head towards the, the weekend, uh, latter part of this week. Okay, and coastal waters, what are they like at the moment? Uh, fairly light winds on the coastal waters, so um, generally got a trough right across most of the NT um, low-pressure area, so we've got westerly winds, over the, the western waters, only about 10 knots. Um, that's including the harbour, just getting those western northwesterlies, about 10 knots. Um, a little bit stronger in the Gulf of Carpentaria. We're seeing east northeasterly winds uh, getting up to 10 to 15 knots. Um, but even yeah, off the north coast today, uh, seeing only about 10 knot easterlies. But that could pick up a little bit tomorrow. Okay, and anything else that we should be made aware of before you go? Uh, I think that, that pretty much covers it. Um, yeah, so probably uh, for the next few days at southwestern corner of the NTs, we're going to see a lot of um, afternoon thunderstorm activity. Um, 
still up in the top end for a couple of days. Um, fairly active, but probably dropping off as we head towards the weekend. Yeah, it's been beautiful. Um, yes. Some of this r- rain has um, really changed the story for so many cattle stations who were battling fires or getting really anxious about fires. And all of a sudden, for some stations, that fire threat is now gone, um, which is wonderful. Yeah, definitely. So if you and your friends at the Bureau can muster up a bit more, that'd be lovely. I'll see what, see what you can do. do. Yeah. All right. Have a lovely afternoon, Beck. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Uh, Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. And if you look at this NAFI website this afternoon, so the North Australia Fire Information website, which uses satellite images to track fires in real time, the map looks the best it's looked in months in that there's just not as many active fires in the Northern Territory this afternoon. I appreciate there's still a few in Central Australia. And a nasty one has popped up in the Barkley close to Anitawa cattle station. So given we just heard the winds are going to pick up tomorrow, that's a bit of a nasty threat there. But uh, certainly sort of what, north of Elliot, the NAFI map is looking much, much better. It's 11 to 1. If you tuned into the Country Hour yesterday, you would have heard our coverage about the NT's new water allocation plan for the Georgina Wiso Basins, the government says 210,000 megalitres a year could be sustainably pumped from that region for industries like agriculture and mining. It's a lot of water, 210,000 megalitres, which from memory is 0.028% of the total storage. There's a lot of water out there. Uh, The government has put a cap on how much water the oil and gas companies can use. So that's been capped at 10,000 megalitres a year. Uh, David Slummer is the NT director of the oil and gas lobby group Energy Producers Australia, which was formerly called APIA. And he says the industry is happy with that amount. I make note that within the allocation plan, we sit at about 5% of uh, water that's been allocated for fracking in the Beedaloo of the total available allocation that is available and one might say why why that is such a low number well it's because our industry actually doesn't use that much water and in the 21st century fracking operations oil and gas operations have really learned how to be efficient and respectful with water um, some of the t- uh, filtration technologies, um, some of the water reuse technologies and uh, 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 amongst the best in the world. And as a result, the industry doesn't draw that much water at all. What uh, our industry was particularly uh, uh, anxious about was that the petroleum industry, it was looking like we were the only one going to be charged for the use of water. So we made it very very clear that if the petroleum activities were going to be charged for the use of groundwater that all other sectors be charged at the same time considering that we used last year less than one percent of all water used in the northern territory went to oil and gas and petroleum operations so we're we're a minor player as david slama from energy producers australia so when you look at this new water allocation plan 210,000 megalitres a year 10,000 of which can be used by the oil and gas companies, 159,000 megalitres set aside for agriculture, aquaculture, mining, etc. And there's an Aboriginal water reserve for Aboriginal economic development of 20,000 megalitres. 
If you missed the coverage yesterday and our chat with the department and our conversation with the NT Environment Centre, that's all up on our website. You can go back, listen to that podcast. It's got a link to the plan itself. So if you're interested, head that way and happy days. ABC Listen. Take 5 with San Rowe is back for a new season. And I'll be asking some extraordinary people about the five songs that shaped them. From Jimmy Barnes to G Flip, see a whole new side via the music they love. Music was everything for me. Go to the ABC Listen app to hear the full interviews from the episodes on screen. Season two of Take Five with me, Zan Rowe. Find the podcast now on the ABC Listen app. It's a quarter past one. Feral cats are a huge problem across this nation, killing hundreds of millions of birds and native animals every year. Now, there's lots of different programs that are happening to try and reduce their numbers, including baiting and trapping. But out in the APY lands near the NTSA border, sharpshooters have been using a drone to help find and muster up these feral cats. Victoria Ellis met drone pilot Murray Miller when she was out at Kenmore Park. So it's got a heap of different cameras on the front and you've got your laser range finder, a wide camera for day stuff, a zoom camera, which you can actually use at night with the spotlight speaker combo and a thermal camera down the bottom. So my name is Murray Miller. I'm a drone pilot for Feral Solutions. I control feral cats and foxes, mainly with the drones, uh, for the APY lens. And then you have basically a light bar on the top of your drone and a speaker that you can tell people in um, circumstances. You can you can bark at things if you... Do you bark at the cats? Uh, we have. We <laughs> can have. you give me an impersonation of that bark? <laughs> uh, there's, a really, there's a really good recording of me on, uh, on my other drone, but um, I just used a woof, 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 woof. And... It's, it's worked, surprisingly. So the cats um, hear a wolf and they decide that they're going to run away from the drone in most situations? I'd like to think I do a really good dog impression, but uh, <laughs> I think it's more of just that it's a loud noise just in their area and they get spooked along with the, with the noise the drone makes. So what we usually do is we spotlight and we'll pick up an eye because the cat's eyes shine up in the spotlight and we'll stop and we will get out, put the drone up, and then fly it out, find the cat or fox, and then we'll basically do our best to try and push it back towards the bus or keep an eye on it and keep it in a place so someone can go and get it. So you're literally mustering up these feral animals, and there's a saying, um, it's like herding, <laughs> herding cats. What is it like in reality, herding cats? Is it as difficult as that saying implies? It can be. Uh, you can have cats that will be perfectly fine and run straight away from you. And then you can have ones that don't really care and will go straight under the drone and do everything they can to, to get away. Before you started using the drone, what sort of method were you using? We were just basically doing it as the old style which is just a spotlight and just shooting out of the bus um, sometimes you would put a light on or put a thermal scope on and you might walk out after an animal but in high buffalo grass out here 
you you can't you just can't keep up so how much more effective is it having the drone oh i'd like to say basically everything everything we see we can get now um as opposed to when it was on the ground you'd you'd be very unlikely to get them how many cats do you think you get out here in a two-week block is that how long you spend out on country uh 24 days so we we end up getting probably 20 to 40 animals um and recently it's been getting more and more why is it getting more uh, good, good conditions. So they had a mouse plague come through, uh, lots of food, very easy for animals to breed up, um, predating on all that natural uh, food source and just, just good conditions out here. How many native animals would you save by getting rid of one cat, if you can figure that out? <laughs> oh, well, we've had cats that we've opened up and they've had 24 mice in them. And that's just one night of hunting. So the sky is the limit just about for how many they just kill every night. What's the main species that you're trying to protect out here and where exactly do you cull around here? Uh, so a little places called Womijara and Newell. It's places that land management um, are trying to bring back a... a fairly large population of black flank wallabies so they release them on these hills and we go around and just try to keep the cats away from them. Have you noticed in the time that you've been coming here that those species have been rebreeding and coming becoming more? The best place you could say that is Newell because they they did baiting and we were shooting and they basically did everything possible and that really really helped. Um, Womijara, not quite as much because they don't do baiting, but uh, it's they're just maybe managing, but I'd say they're on the decline just due to the amount of foxes you get there. That is drone pilot for Feral Solutions, Murray Miller, literally herding cats out there in the APY lands. He was speaking to Victoria Ellis. Uh, from that remote part of Australia, we are heading to Timor-Leste next. Uh, hi, it's Dwayne Klinkamer here on board the Austral Hunter, part of the Northern Prawn Fishery, and we're in the Mooring Basin, or better known as the Duck Pond in Darwin, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Before... Foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease got into Indonesia. The big biosecurity story was African swine fever. Remember it? It got into China about five years ago. And within a year, it spread to multiple countries throughout Asia. It's estimated to have wiped out a quarter of the world's pig population. And it is seen as a major risk to Australia's agriculture. African swine feeder, it's also had a big impact on communities in Timor-Leste. But as Emma Field discovered, the impact could have been much worse if not for the help from some Australian scientists. 
I'm at the Fatu Maka Agricultural School at Fidloru, east of Dili, walking through irrigation, set up in Portuguese colonial times. Past the rows of buildings which serve as boarding houses for students and near the free-range chickens, buffalo and a monkey in a cage, are some brand new pig pens. They are part of the battle against African swine fever. East Timor's Ministry for Agriculture, Livestock, Fisheries and Forestry Chief Veterinarian Dr Janita Jong tells me what happened in November 2019 when they first received reports of African swine fever. At that time we are facing very difficult situations when we have the report coming from farmers that they have lots of pigs dying in uh, the capital city. Pig is very important because uh, when we cultural ceremony, uh, it requires live pigs. And also, pigs also uh, support our local farmers. Anytime they can sell, they can, they can get the money. Yeah, they can get if the they, money. Yeah, yeah. in, in these emergency situations. Some of them, they are, they, because they livelihood, they just depend on the pigs. Mm. When we visit them, they're just crying. They say, we lost of the pigs. What do we have to do? At the time, China was suffering its second major swine fever outbreak where millions of pigs died. But without any ability to test for the disease, Dr Joanita picked up the phone and called some Australian government colleagues who advised her to send samples to a government lab near Geelong in Victoria. When those results were positive for ASF, she again asked for Australian help. At that time, we, we have no preparations at all. We have no equipments, we have no budget, we have no uh, nothing uh, in order to stop the, the virus. Agriculture Victoria pathobiology veterinarian Professor Grant Rowland got a call from Canberra asking him to take a newly developed field test called LAMP to Timor. In, in Timor, setting up uh, for testing within two weeks, it was uh, pretty full on. The LAMP test, we could actually run that out of a, a, um, a ute, uh, and that's how it's designed to use in Australia. They didn't have any testing at all for African swine fever. So by us taking our field test over, at least they could uh, actually have their laboratory uh, working on African swine fever. So that's, uh, that's how we did it. Pork production is vastly different in Timor. There are no large-scale piggeries, subsistence farming is common and there's certainly no cold chain supply network. Soon after, East Timor's Ministry for Agriculture started a publicity campaign to educate farmers and other pig owners about the disease and measures to prevent its spread. This included a special hotline nicknamed the Pig Phone and the Australian government was closely watching developments. East Timor is just an hour and a half flight from Darwin. Sniffer dogs are being urgently flown to Darwin in a bid to stop African swine fever from entering the country. Now, this comes after several confirmations of the disease in East Timor. For the Agriculture Victoria team, that first visit in 2019 was just the beginning of a biosecurity partnership. We wound up with uh, three years funding to continue the work on African swine fever because it was still running at that stage uh, on the, and we we're looking at recovery. Uh, that first tranche of funding, that was for three years, and that was looking at increasing the uh, testing, so uh, making sure the LAMP uh, test was continuing and backing, all, backing that up, more training, but also getting surveillance out around the country, knowing where that disease was. 
The Victorian government's support included helping the Timorese rebuild their herd, which included rolling out biosecurity pig pens, which were built in locations free of ASF. Professor Rowland said the pig pens were simple and cost-effective and essential because many pigs roamed free and foraged across Timorese villages. So if you have the pigs that are being uh, kept in a biosecure pen, it's just like a pigsty, but you have a, a second fence around that, as long as you don't have, if you like, nose-to-nose contact, the disease stops. And this, along with all the other biosecurity measures, worked. The first outbreak was basically out of control. There were around about 150, 180,000 pigs that died. That affects something like 50,000 families because most families over there have a pig or, or three. Since then, with the surveillance and the testing, the very quick testing, uh, we can diagnose within 24 hours now. We've had another couple of outbreaks of African swine fever up there, and each time we've lost less than 100 pigs. That's the power of the system that these guys now have. And after the success of the ASF regime, Dr Joanita says they're developing new measures against other biosecurity threats. Because we are still free from uh, food and mouth disease and uh, lumpy skin disease, but it is risk, uh, still a high risk to Timor-Leste. That's why we did the support from the Department of Agriculture uh, in Canberra. We have uh, uh, regular surveillance every year to prevent the country from food and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. We now stop the importations of live animals from Indonesia. And Professor Rowland says his work in Timor has left a deep impression. Uh, A few of us in the project consider it the pinnacle of our career because we're just using so many of the skills that we've gained over the years to go from 150, 180,000 pigs dead to 100 at a time. It's it's just amazing. But we would have achieved nothing without the Timorese. Uh, They have been absolutely brilliant. They've worked hard. Uh, They've worked smart. And uh, I, I haven't seen anything like it in my life before. That's Professor Grant Rowland from Agriculture Victoria ending that report from Emma Field. It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards with all the latest prices out of Roma. Here's David Friend. Roma raisins yarded 4,056 head, almost 2,400 more than previous sale. Cattle were drawn from the local supplies district as well as far western Queensland. All processes active as well as feedlots and backgrounders. A lift in quality improved prices considerably. At the time of this interim report, light weight yielding steers under 200 kilos returning to the paddock made to 3.24 to average 2.90. Light weight yielding steers 200 to 280 kilos topped at 3.22 to average 3.03. Yielding steers 280 to 330 kilos averaged 2.97 and made to 3.20. Yielding steers 330 to 400 kilos made to 3.10 to average 2.78. Yielding steers 400 to 480 kilos made from 210 to 266 to average 254. Yielding steers over 480 kilos to feed topped at 258. Manufacturing steers topped at 202 with growing steers 5 to 600 kilos made to 218 to average 212 and with over 600 kilos topped at 220. Heavyweight bulls to 210. This has been David Friend from the MLA National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, David. In the live export trade, it is very quiet. There were no ships out of Darwinport last week. There's none due out this week from what I can tell. And Indonesia is busy buying buffalo meat from India. That's it for today's program. Keep it rural.